0: Hi, I'm Ali, and I'm Penny, and you're listening to Not Too Busy to Write,
1: the podcast about writing, publishing and creativity amongst life's many other demands.
0: Today, Ali and I are talking to Olivia Sucic, who is the author of um, Asylum Road, which came out in February, and also another novel, Sympathy, and the um, essay Exposure, which came out a few years ago. Um, Welcome to the show, Olivia.
2: Hi, thanks for having me.
0: It's so exciting to have you here. I think I got in touch with you randomly. I think I basically stalked you on Instagram when exposure came out and told you how much I loved it. And we've basically been in touch ever since.
2: That's the nicest thing, honestly, A, for any writer, I think, because you don't exactly otherwise have a community just ready-made if it's not via things like Instagram. But it's especially nice for me because my first novel was all about a writer who stalks and or gets stalked on Instagram. So I think I made a lot of people wary to approach me. (laughs) Especially by that medium without, you know, I get a lot of I'm not a stalker, but which is like (laughs)
0: <laughs> right, sure nor am I nor are any of us but here we are <laughs> but here we are so um tell us a little bit about where you are at the moment um and what got you up to this point in your writing life
2: sure do you mean where I am physically or <laughs> <where I'm
0: handsome? laughs> I mean you can talk about physically if you like you have a beautiful bookcase behind you which we just talked I about think. before we recorded but um But in terms of where you are in your writing quote at this point, your second novel was just um, released a few months ago. um, And the essay that you brought out, Exposure in Between Your Two Novels, talks a lot about um, being a writer and and the fact that anxiety is a bit of an occupational hazard of writers, you know, because of our need to expose ourselves. Um, And so I'd love to hear about your, um, I guess, how you got to writing in the first place and, um, and, the, and, ha- and how you got from there to where you are now.
2: Sure, so I guess I'm finally, well, finally, I mean, I, for some context, I'm 32 and I started writing kind of in a deliberate sort of like, maybe I want to make this part of my life in the kind of career way as well when I was 25. Um, at the time, I was working full-time in a kind of branding, design, strategy type of company, which was quite, it was it was fun, and it was full-on as well, and um, I, I'd done lots of different jobs before that since graduating uh, in 2010, um, and I did English as my degree, so I'd spent obviously a lot of time kind of reading books and I guess writing essays, although... <laughs> probably not in the right ratio, but um, <laughs> I, I guess I felt like in lots of ways looking back and that might seem like a kind of quite obvious uh, preparation for becoming a writer, but I think in lots of ways that degree made me almost uh, dampen any sort of like, hopes I had for creative writing. Cause I sort of started to feel like, oh, wow, you know, this is, the, you know, I was doing an essay, let's say on whatever, Henry James and then not really feeling like necessarily picking up my laptop and trying to write my own
0: novel kind of yeah. thing. But I imagine a lot of people can identify with that feeling.
2: Yeah. And I think at the same time, it was great in the sense that I think that, you know, a lot of the best writers are readers. Right. And that's often what makes a good good writer but I but yeah that is to say that I definitely didn't leave university thinking I'm going to become an author and I don't think I've ever really entertained that properly except as like a very young child when I you know I wanted to write like Roald Dahl books and illustrate them that I think I've I think my Wikipedia says apart from also getting my age wrong it says that she's always wanted to be an author and I'm like that would be lovely but no um I definitely went off on a kind of mini sort of safari in terms of different jobs afterwards. But then when I turned 25 um, and that was in 2014, I remember feeling like I wasn't brilliant at my job. And also the type of job it was, was very like reduced complexity to a single word or a single kind of concept. And I just realized more and more that that wasn't really how my brain worked or like to work um and also even though there is actually quite a lot of ways I know that some writers do a lot of copywriting and advertising and brand strategy and all those kinds of things like I don't know Salman Rushdie as an example there are things about it that you know like world building and kind of coming up with whatever strap lines that are similar but actually there was I guess something about it that almost started to make me realize I guess by a process of elimination what i did want to do so i think apart from feeling like i wanted to do that kind of deep dive complex kind of mm-hmm. writing also i guess there was an element as well that really wanted some control back over the work that i did because i felt very much like always at the mercy of a client who might yes. cancel a project who you know it wasn't that i don't like working with other people in teams i love being around people but i I think I'd just been working on this big project that had just completely fallen apart and it suddenly felt really tempting to, and specifically, I guess, to write a novel because it wouldn't have been the same if I'd, let's say, tried to write a movie script or tried to do a play because those still rely so much on bringing a team together, having the money in place, having an audience. Like, there are all these, you know cameras equipment all that kind of stuff that has to be in place where there was something so tempting about the idea of writing a novel which as hard as it obviously also sounds it sounded like all I need is my laptop you know that's literally technically all I need and I can set it in space if I want to (laughs) it's
0: so interesting you say that because if I think back over my career I've I did film at university and I very quickly decided, and my dad works in film as well. And so I've spent a lot of time on film sets, but I very quickly decided that I wasn't going to do that because of that whole too, there's too many people, too much money to get anything off the ground. And I put that up that put me off, and so then I went to photography, which is like much smaller teams. You can do so much more with such a small amount of money in comparison. And now, yes. and then I went to writing nonfiction, which again, less and less people involved. And now I'm writing <laughs> fiction, and doing basically, I'm just slowly I'm like, okay.
2: I'm fine <laughs> Yeah, I do. I definitely do. I mean, even like with films, as you mentioned, like now that I know some people who work in that world, like I just find it extraordinary that any films end up getting made and you realize that it's only with the sort of (laughs) snowplow of a huge budget and one very famous person in it that anything gets off the ground. Because even just like coordinating schedules and diaries and like, you know, it just it was I basically think it was as much because I'd realised I wanted to write as the idea of like, what can I do where it's just me?
0: Mm, yeah. (laughs) And
2: obviously in the end, that also is what I think led to that anxiety that I write about and exposure is because what you do obviously when you reduce your team just to you is that you also the sole responsible Mm -hmm. person and you no longer have that communally reinforcing thing where like, I don't know, if the book is bad you can't spread out that
0: kind of it's (laughs) kind of on your shoulders essentially I suppose isn't it obviously you have a a team you know you have an editor and you have you know a a copyright a copy editor and things like that but it is different it's very different isn't
2: it yeah you do feel like you are the one who you're definitely helped by a team but in terms of like whose head is sort of on the spike in the review or whatever. It's it's basically yours. Your name on the front. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And also, you know, ultimately, um, I guess I felt like I also, I knew I was young and I knew I had basically at that point no real responsibilities. So I'd been renting, you know, for quite a long time, like obviously since I went to university and then in London, but my parents lived in London and they you know, well, they weren't happy about this. They definitely didn't want me to quit my job and become a writer because they were like, we want you to look after us when we're old and we're still paying off our mortgage. And you know, why can't you, I don't know, help (laughs) help us out by doing something a bit more lucrative. And I was like, hmm, if I don't take the chance now to like drastically reduce, you know, so I basically moved back in with them for a bit, started, I didn't initially just quit the job. I sort of took a six month break. I started doing like you know bits on the side, like working at literary festivals, doing some sort of teaching, tutoring work. Um, basically, trying to drastically reduce my, you know, I guess the the claims on me. I no, that's actually good because I didn't know where where I was going with that train of thought for a minute. About that bit. Um, but the, I guess yeah, the point was, this is a really good time for me to take a kind of calculated risk. Like it wasn't a risk. It was a very privileged risk in the sense that I had parents who I could move back in with. I, you know, I knew they weren't going to let me, whatever, starve. And I technically had a job I could go back to at the end of six months. So it wasn't a risk. But for me, who was a very cautious person, it felt like I was going to say stepping off a career ladder, but I was definitely at the bottom (laughs) rung. But you know, it was like, oh, I'm taking a foot off. And I think when you've really been programmed you know, I graduated while well, I was at university, you know, in my second year in 2008, when suddenly lots of my mm-hmm. friends were graduating were like, oh my God, I was going to be an artist, but now I think I'll do a law conversion because, you know, everything is just really kind of imploding in, in, in the arts and also in terms of like, you want to have some kind of stable career. And so I nearly got on that, on, I nearly thought, right. I should be a lawyer. My parents were like, yes, yes, <laughs> please. Um, but I did a a, you know, a short stint in an office and as a kind of intern and realized it wasn't for me, but I had never, you know, even really gone traveling or I hadn't taken a gap year or anything like that. I just done kind of school, 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 university, university, work, work, work. And I sort of saw it as like, this is my year to be or six months to be kind of irresponsible when I don't mm-hmm. have I don't have kids, I don't have whatever, all these things that maybe in time will become,
0: uh, oh, I was going to say
2: burdens, that's not what I mean. No, but they're
0: they're responsibilities that mean that your income has to be at a certain basic level each month just to survive, you know, and it is... And that does mean you have to take on paid work that maybe when you're 25 and you don't have an expensive flat that you have to pay rent or mortgage on. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, that sounds like the perfect time to take it.
2: And I'd also just gone through a big breakup with someone who I'd been with for like sort of five years on and off at that point. And it was sort of like, as all breakups do, where you're like, I could cut all my hair off. I could Mm. do anything. I had that Mm. sense of like all of the known stable things about how life is and is supposed to be have suddenly been kind of cracked open. So if I was in that kind of mood to take a risk because I guess what seemed safe wasn't safe anyway, sort of thing. Yeah. So suddenly I was like, Oh, I could just, you know, I could do anything. And I, I ended up deciding that I would go and stay with my granny who I didn't know very well growing up, but who lives in New York. And part of that was also because I think if I'd just been living at home in my parents' basement, who weren't very keen on me doing this. (laughs) And also like whilst all my friends were in their normal jobs, I think I would have just felt unemployed Mm -hmm. and sort of purposeless. Whereas being in a new place, you know, I was out of my normal routine. Like that definitely helped me feel like, okay, I'm here to write. And obviously... Obviously, what happened is that I didn't write at all because suddenly having no constraints doesn't necessarily equal productivity. And I and I definitely I I I can only speak for myself, but I definitely think that not too much responsibility, not too much constraint, but a little bit, you know, even in the form of a brief or a deadline, you know, that's really helpful to being creative often and finding ways around. That is what creativity is, really. It's like problem solving, solution finding, you know, like having something to resist or react against. So So
0: how did you you approach that time, your time then? And how did Sympathy come about? Well, Sympathy was
2: originally a very, in my head. And when I sort of mapped it out as an idea, it was going to be a very different book. It was originally, I guess, the sort of novel from reading things like Henry James that I thought you sort of, should write or like what a novel was i didn't have very much i wasn't then a very big reader of contemporary fiction because i'd spent so long doing this quite you know the canon at university and the kind of i had a very different idea of what it was supposed to be so i had started trying to write this historical novel but then being in new york and being in the situation i was in in terms of with my granny who then got very sick so i was looking after her i i felt like actually the way to begin is not to try and resist all these demands on my attention, like being in a new city, like trying to kind of ignore my phone and social media and all that kind of stuff that suddenly had become a big distraction, especially post breakup. I was like, actually I need to use that Mm. thing that I'm finding to be such a kind of like a block basically to this work. And that almost should become my way in. So having felt like the internet was this big kind of foe to writing in lots of ways, both as a distraction, also as a kind of like mortal enemy of the, you know, publishing industry as, you know, a kind of against attention spans against, you know, against what lots of people then thought the plot of a novel should be. The internet obviously tends to ruin that pretty much straight away. If someone could just call and find out the answer at the beginning of the book, you know, you would not have many of our kind of classic plot lines. And so I guess the challenge then was like, okay, so how do I take this thing that it seems to be a kind of obstacle and make that into, yeah, that make that into the subject, which was great because... It, that suddenly really kind of fired me up. And I think before I'd just been looking at what was essentially a blank page and feeling mm. guiltier and guiltier, which obviously then made me procrastinate more and more. And I just thought, how will I ever be a writer if this is this perfect seeming time, this ideal, mm. these ideal conditions and I'm not using them. Mm. That was like the hard, you know, I felt so ungrateful and so stupid. And obviously my parents were like, so any writing? And I'd be like, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't ask me about it. But um, so that was sort of what got me going is to suddenly totally change course and make the thing that was, I was finding really difficult, the kind of the motor, I guess, of the story. Mm. And then I was really lucky, basically, which I think is how it unfortunately does often work, is that I met my literary agent, um, who's great and is like everything I could sort of dream of in an agent in the sense that she's like my ideal reader. So I kind of only like to think about what she might think rather than having that kind of Mm -hmm. huge crowd of potential readers Mm -hmm. where you sort of start writing for committee or whatever. Um, And also she was she just stopped being an agent's assistant and was actively building her own list. So she was looking for people to put on it. And it only had about one or two names on it. I think now if I met her, she'd be like, sorry, no room. (laughs) But um, (laughs) brilliant timing. And also, I think that that was really good for me because, well, I I don't think I would have been proactive enough or even brave enough to send my work out to mm. an, an unsolicited thing. Whereas, obviously, someone asking you to send it, that just triggered the people pleaser in me where I was like, well, I've been asked to do it, so I must, you know, and then I did get the three <laughs> captures of the beginning done. And also because she was young, she was sort of my age, and and she was also you know starting her career in that sense so I didn't have that kind of I've got friends who maybe have like a much older much more established figure as their agent who they're actually a bit afraid of mm-hmm. and I, you know you sort of feel I guess almost like an imposter with them as well as you do yeah. and so I, I think I didn't feel like that with her
1: I think this is such an important point about getting the right agent and making sure that it's somebody who you can relate to and also someone that you can kind of narrow down that focus. Cause I know that I do the same thing. Um, I write with my agent completely in my mind. I'm always just kind of, I'm thinking of him and what he likes. And I think that that really helps, mm. um, when you have that kind of, um, relationship, but, also that quite often people are attracted to wanting to get a more established agent or wanting to get a bigger name mm. agent and um and I think it's a great point that you raise about getting someone who's younger and someone who's building their list that happened with me um my agent is younger and I think that there's also that ambition there I as did, well yeah. of, whereas you know I've got I, I totally understand if you're
2: conception of what an agent should be is basically just the person who handles your contracts or who you know <laughs> kind of gets gets on someone's case on your behalf for an unpaid invoice or something then maybe you just want a big name or someone who is you know feared and respected but to me I didn't realize it but it's worked out really well that would have been awful for me because then I would have been too afraid to send my work to my agent as well and what yeah. I what I need from an agent and what I have got which works so well for me is that I feel like nurtured and supported by her I feel like she has so many you know editorial inputs and kind of she it's it's much more like a you know it's what often spurs me to think of ideas it's just a much more kind of symbiotic relationship in that way and like she's always around for me to talk to about stuff and bounce ideas off and like We WhatsApp in the middle of the night, you know, and I've got friends who are honestly too afraid to send their agents an email because they're so, whatever, revered. I mean, now, you know, Emma is doing really well and is all of those things, but luckily I got to meet her before she became you know,
0: big name on campus. I like guess uh, It's so true. I've had agents for years as a photographer and also for the six years I spent as an assistant to fashion photographers, I was in touch with so many agents and I made a very, the decision very, very early on the kind of relationship I wanted to have with an agent. And it's the same literary as it is photography, which is that I need someone that um, I feel like I can trust with my career and with long-term decisions and with looking at the long-term as well as looking at the finer detail. And I need someone nice, really nice. I worked (laughs) with so many assholes as a photographer's (laughs) assistant in New York and London, like really massive agents, with like the biggest fashion photographers in the world. And I would see them like have one face for one lot of people and another face for another lot of people. And I swore at that point that I would never... Choose someone like that, but I know some people love to have that scary person on their side. But yeah, I don't. Mm -hmm. It's not my.
2: I, I also think like it depends on the type of like. I can imagine if I was I don't know a journalist who was really well established and already had you know a certain level of maybe confidence about their work, and then wanted to write a nonfiction, like a narrative nonfiction type book then maybe, yeah, you just want an agent who's going to kind of execute for you. Yeah, I don't mean that literally, although...
0: (laughs) Although (laughs) Who knows?
2: (laughs) But then for me, like, if what you're writing, let's say, is fiction or it deals with much more sensitive personal stuff or it's something that, you know, you're doing very much without a team around you, you're at home every day on your own, maybe, like, your agent really, to me, can be that person who gives you the kind of nourishment the kind of sense of support team you know you you, you've already got so many like imagined hostile potential enemy reader reviewers out there who are like oh god they're gonna hate me so of course you need you know I actually watched that Billie Eilish documentary recently and I'm like yeah like the brother and in the room in the dark where you're coming up with these like weird things and you're like the internet's gonna think I'm stupid but because you're just in that in that almost like private relationship that you have with your agent, at least for a bit, you can suspend self-consciousness and kind of Uh get this fledgling thing off the ground. So also I, I, now I look back and realize this at the time I didn't know that actually that's a relationship that, Hopefully, will really outlast often quite a lot of let's say your relationship with the editor at the publishing house. You know, editors Mm. come and go. Like I've actually unfortunately had it that the editor of Sympathy and the editor of Asylum Road both left their respective (gasps) posts before the book came out, which is unfortunate in lots of different ways and for lots of reasons. Because then you're kind of like this floating person who doesn't have you know someone else takes over, but they weren't the person who took you on and. Um, whereas obviously your agent provides continuity and
0: mm-hmm. you know,
2: and also they think about your career, like you said, you hope, in the in the real long term. Yeah. The editor can be like that, but much more of the time they're thinking of it like this book right and 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 they aren't necessarily thinking about the arc of your career overall and so they can't give you that and often they'll want that book to be a certain thing based on what's you know current at that moment mm-hmm. or what yes, will sell exactly. yeah agent is thinking about you much more in the long, yeah. in the long term so for me that's like it's I, a different I,
0: perspective, isn't it? They just exactly. have different. And, and for me, I think if it wasn't for that,
2: I would have just gone back to my old job and been like, you know what? Turns out this isn't for me. I can't do it on my own. And I'm just going to go back to what I was doing before. Um, but because I literally encountered her and she asked me to send her three chapters, I was like, okay, right. Like, I've got a deadline. I've got this. Oh. I'm not sure how I'm going to make it work. But suddenly it was like, I, I realise I really am programmed by, well, the British, I guess, school system of like A levels and I'm like, okay, I I will do nothing for a year and then right before the exam, go cram, cram, cram. And I'm like that you know, to be honest, you could give me all the time and all the space in the world for for a piece of work and I would still only start the day before it was due. Like that <laughs> seems to be my MO. But equally I'm aware now that all that time leading up to it isn't isn't wasted time so like I would say after sympathy I was struggling to write the next book I think I've only just got now that I've published three and I'm contracted to write a four I now call myself a writer like (laughs) there was a long time where I thought of myself as a person who has written a book two books now I'm like okay three not so much of a fluke now like now you just. (laughs) you know it's okay to say writer i still for some reason don't say author just because that sounds like a few pay grades up
1: really <laughs> yeah i think author sounds really weird i'm with you on that i find it a really difficult word i don't, I don't like it i don't know i, I think
2: it's because I, I worship authors so for me that's like you know and i still think of myself as a writer because that's something that pretty much most people do if they write emails they write shopping yeah. lists I write that plus books
0: <laughs> just write so funny. Longer I, just, ones. I hadn't thought about that I've been comfortable putting author in writing but I don't think I've said it out loud and if I've been on a podcast and someone introduces me that way I'm always like oh who are they talking about oh Same. <laughs> Same. I look around like me, me?
2: <laughs> well also it does then often put me in this funny state of like sort of imposter syndrome from the get-go because I'm like, okay, look like a serious author. furrow <laughs> <Toro> your brow. <laughs> Broke your chin. Um, but yeah, so basically I I after sympathy had this sort of funny I guess it was a bit of limbo, maybe partly again because my editor had left that publishing house. So I already knew I was gonna look elsewhere to sell the next book and I'd had this idea, and I was sort of working on it since before *Sympathy* even came out, and it is sort of still basically the same idea as what *Asylum Road*, my latest novel, ended up being. But I, I basically just had—I guess the easiest way to characterize it is a—is—is uh, is writing is a very different thing from publishing,
0: right? Mm. And yeah.
2: they're two like almost completely polar experiences, but also drives and they require completely different things of you and sympathy had been this real process of kind of you know it's especially the case I think with your first novel like I know it's obviously really difficult to write a first novel but when I hear people talking about those struggles and it's not like I'm jealous but I want to almost say that really annoying thing of like oh but enjoy it because you're never going to get that real experience of lack of self-consciousness again you are you know that wonder and that satisfaction just having finished a whole chapter you know now now that I I don't I'm one of those people who obviously just finds the next thing to be stressed about so it's not no longer a case of yes I finished a book which is obviously what I felt the first time I didn't care if it didn't sell I didn't care if no one read it I didn't care if it didn't win any prizes it was just the satisfaction of having done it and obviously then to go into publishing mode where you suddenly have to. Well, you, you. I mean, the funny thing is, obviously, a lot of authors manage to maybe not go so hard on self-promotion, but that's often because they have an engine at the big, expensive publishing house doing it for them, or you know, they've got such a big, I don't know, advance or whatever it is that that almost does the. And I and I remember it was in my contract that you know I had to have a website, I had to have a form of social media, I had to. And it's not that I object to those things it just it really started to take it out of me and also I think if you're someone who has imposter syndrome constantly doing a form of self-promotion even if it's very British and it's like you know kind of sort of basically constantly doing yourself down as a form of self-promotion um I I felt like yeah I sort of felt like oh I this has made me Almost feel like I'm not a writer and that that was a fluke, mm. that I don't mm. really know what I'm doing and I don't want to publish really. Or, I, or publishing suddenly feels like the opposite of what I want from writing, which is to have this like release from tension mm. and a release and this private space. And also, I guess, when it becomes, if not your soul, but one of your main sources of income, it also, I think, does start to feel like a bit of a job mm. where instead of being like this you know, escape hatch that you go to in life where you can kind of resist life and have this, it's got this sort of siren song. I think it then started to feel like, okay, so how can I write something that will be popular and will make some money? And how can I write something that will get whatever reviewed well or you know, you just think of it in a very different way and you start to, like, avoid it and you start to sort of then feel really guilty because, you know, you're really privileged to be able to write and then, you know, you just sort of, in the end, you just, I think, get into a bit of a paralysis, I guess. And then that's when I wrote Exposure because I, again, I think I've realised that when I'm facing one of those kind of obstacles, the best way is to write into it, it, rather than try and go around it because it's just... So for me, if if writing is a place, not of honesty in the sense of personal, you know, confession, but it's certainly a place of hopeful, like, authenticity where I'm not trying to be anything that I'm not, other than obviously another character, but I sort of feel like it's me not pretending to be someone else because I enjoy writing so much. It was sort of the only way, really, was to say, I'm struggling with writing, and that became exposure. And then it's funny, I... I didn't really think it would work, but it did. (laughs) It was a kind of form of exposure therapy, which is what I write about in the book, exposing yourself to what you're afraid of. And it did also, I think, find me new readers who kind of, I think, now get what I am about a bit more. Whereas I think that maybe with sympathy, the way that it was marketed was sort of like, I don't know, like it was girl on a train, but with no train kind of thing. Like there was a sort of element of it being this kind of, which I would love it if I'd written Girl on a Train. That would have been great, (laughs) Um, financially especially. But um, I didn't write that. And I think that people coming to it with that expectation were a bit like, oh, this is a bit weird. This is a bit of a slow burn. And then people who maybe were up for a different kind of book didn't pick it up. Whereas I felt like exposure was really good because it was sort of, ah, I get now what type of writer she is. And I can, you know... And I felt more authentic talking about it as well and so that kind of cleared the way for Asylum Road which I had obviously had on this back burner the whole time and like the way that I would work on it would either be to read and research or to just make constant notes in my phone Mm -hmm. uh, whatever it is and the thing is is I do write like I said in this very short concentrated way right before a deadline but the only reason that is possible is cuz i'm a kind of coiled spring so that for mm. at least a year or two or three there's actually been so much going on and it's not mm-hmm. it's not a word count or a rate of words it's a mood that builds and builds and builds like a storm and then it's like i was going to say gush. but
0: <laughs> and i think <laughs> oh as well God. like that almost so perfectly describes asylum road anyway you know like that that building of the storm that you can feel throughout like from the beginning of the book it just builds and builds and builds that's what it feels like to read it as well
2: yeah I mean I definitely have realized that the the medium and message are therefore very intertwined in the sense that, like the way that I work and I don't know if it will be the way I always work maybe maybe it will but that definitely does like you say create the types of characters and the types of moods that are in my books like I really like it that you say it's building tension I often worry that it's just over caffeinated (laughs) But yeah it's it it is it is how I also I think that you know, starting out with a book where you want to maybe talk, I find it so Rachel Cust talks about this really well, I find it really embarrassing to write fiction at the beginning where you're like creating John and Jane, and what are they gonna say to each other, so like easing myself in from a place of let's say real geography or a real situation like I am in New York I am staying with my grandmother that's my jumping off point Mm. equally like the mood I'm creating like I wouldn't say I'm a method actor in that sense but I can't I couldn't write a character who's losing her mind if to some degree I'm not also (laughs) feeling Um, like I'm losing mine as I write it because it just feels so fantastical to do that. And I think, you know, I'd love to be the kind of person who can write a very calm book about very calm characters, but I would have to change my whole process at this point.
1: I think that it really comes across in Asylum Road. I've never read, um, and this is, I've made notes on this, but I've never read a more destabilising book. Um... And I loved that. That's absolutely what I loved about it. The whole book felt so fluid. It felt like it moved. And I don't think I've read a book before that really felt kinetic. It was like everything, almost like everything was in the wrong place. The things that should have stayed down were coming up. Things were crumbling. Things were moving. It's just so brilliantly executed. How conscious were you of doing that when you were writing it? I think and that, that's so nice of you to say.
2: I think I was, that was the aim, definitely. I don't, I, I do think that was the aim. I, I wasn't though, so with sympathy, and I think this is maybe up in the way with first books, because it really was my first book, like my absolute, mm-hmm. you know, some people have a book that they put in a drawer and then their first published book is actually their, you know, second effort. Yeah. It's definitely felt like, oh, this is the place where I learned to write and that's now what's on sale, god damn. <laughs> yeah I think the way i approached that was with obviously a lot of procrastination as well like plotting 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 planning 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 like I had basically almost like a crime scene version of the book laid out with all these like pins and maps and I kind of yeah it was a bit it was a bit sinister I think when people were looking into this basement seeing this lone girl with her pins and her mask <laughs> I did look like I was like a stalker in the book um, but, with, but with Asylum Road because it was going on alongside so much other stuff and because I knew in my head it wasn't like scaling Everest for the first time like I knew okay I can write 120,000 words obviously and then cut but I can get it done so I'm not I'm not so concerned about mapping out in advance every bit Mm. of the plot as a foothold so that I know, okay, this is what I'll write on this day and this is what I'll write on that day. It could flow more freely, basically. And I think the bits of sympathy I like the most now are the bits where actually I diverted from the plan. Mm. And even though I had my bullet points list of what was going to happen that day, I actually was like, "All oh, this, you know, and I would sort of freestyle more. And I think those are where that kinetic energy often comes mm. from. And it can really help to have a plan, but actually it can be even better and more useful for your writing or free you up more to then divert from that plan. Again, like mm. I say, something to resist against
0: mm. because
2: even having that plan where you're like, and then so-and-so will say this, which causes so-and-so to do that. As you start to think about it, you're like, or would she you know Mm -hmm. and then you actually can get closer to the truth of what you feel like that character would really do because they're being put into situations which were abstract before but when you actually get to it in the book you can then make a kind of yeah Mm -hmm. a a U turn on that and so when I say it was conscious I wanted that to be the mood but I definitely didn't over design it in that way like there were there were some events that I knew in advance would go in. And now I don't want to give sort of spoilers, but like there's a point at which like there's a very near big accident on a road that really happened. Things like that. Like I knew I wanted those to go in. And actually, funny enough, they're the kinds of things which people would normally, I think, warn you against using in fiction because they sound too unrealistic Mm. (laughs) again that was like a challenge I wanted to use as like find some real things that people are like oh no that's much too far-fetched but um so I had I guess like you know maybe four or five events that I knew would happen and again I wanted it to feel like it had a kind of linear energy so it was pulling you through and that's that was quite helpful to have those that sequence but then I totally let the characters sort of lead me between each of those And I think that also can be a good way to make sure that you, the writer, aren't getting bored Mm -hmm. or that you don't always get into this complacent, like you're on rails with what's going on and the characters can still sort of surprise you. Mm -hmm. Because I think what can happen when you, you, when I say bored, I mean like you've seen this movie already many times. Often what can happen is you will start to overcomplicate things just to kind of, you know, you can... You can start tinkering too much, Mm -hmm. and then you sort of forget that the reader who's coming to this for the first time is just going to be like, Whoa, this is a lot to take in, kind of thing. Yeah,
1: I think it's really interesting that you mentioned the reader as well, because I got that real sense as I was reading it that it was a very open book. I feel that a lot of books can exclude the reader, and there isn't space for the reader within the text, but I felt that what you did was you brought us in. And we were there. I think partly how you did that was obviously it's quite an ambiguous book. Um, Nothing's resolved. And that, again, ties back in with the destabilizing aspects of it. Um, Yeah, I loved how you did that. I thought it was really, um, really interesting as well. And then there were a few stylistic things that you did that I wanted to talk to you about. I loved your absence of any kind of um, speech indicators on the page. I thought that that was brilliant. Um, tell me about that. Well, I, okay, so I definitely, I'm, I'm sure some people will hear that and
2: think, oh God, I definitely don't want to read that book. Um, Sorry. No, no, it's no, it's totally fair. I mean, basically I, I felt like I wanted the reader to be so in Anya, the main character's head, mm. that I never really would give them a chance to kind of, um, to, well, like you say, the, the room for them would actually be to start almost wanting to resist her maybe, or like starting to maybe think, hang on, if I'm being seen this entirely through this person's perspective, like what else might be going on around her? Like, you know, in film, where the director comes in really close mm-hmm. and you know that something else in the frame bad is about to happen. Like I wanted that level of of closeness so that there was this implication that around her things might not be as they seemed or that she was sort of losing her grip or that she mm-hmm. has some kind of, as everyone does, a kind of limited viewpoint. Um, also, I guess I I wanted, it felt like the whole book, which is, you know it's basically about a marriage uh, sort of um, a relationship which is about to become a marriage like a proposal happens but it all starts to disintegrate and as well as politically and geographically kind of landscapes disintegrating so the whole book for me thematically was about the idea of disintegration and order and structure falling apart so to sort of have the these markers of and then so and so said this and then this happened and all those sort of I guess, punctuation points um, and rules of grammar didn't sort of feel like they were right there. Mm
0: -hmm.
2: Um, And also, I guess, because I wanted it to feel like it had this acceleration
0: Mm
2: -hmm. um, where it just, you know, starts to happen in this way that is, you know, like... I feel definitely when I'm writing, I spend a good portion writing, rewriting, rewriting, rewriting the first couple of chapters, rolling that ball up the hill. But then when I get it to the top, I want it to be able to just whoosh down the other side. Mm -hmm. And so I felt like I was giving too many footholds for people to, okay. that's a good point for me to just stop the book and go and do something else for a bit. Mm And I wanted to take those moments away because otherwise I didn't feel like it would be possible for them ultimately to really empathize with what the character is going through. I think if you gave them too many Mm. points to like stop and go back to their normal life, they would no longer see her actions through the prism of her experience in the Mm. same way. And I think that in both Sympathy and Asylum Road, a lot of people who read it like just on their commute and then stop for a couple of days and then pick it back up again. I can always tell if someone read it like that because they're like, oh, I would never do that. Whereas the people who maybe spent all night reading it, they're
0: like, oh my God. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I I read it in one day and it was totally worked. Now, the way you described it, like, I was fully i was in her, I was embodying her like I was just mm-hmm. there, and I read it all in one on one Saturday, ignored my children completely oh I'm
2: sorry I, this thing, I hate to be a dictator no. I do think it works it, it does it,
0: yeah. it totally worked the way you um structured it it uh, it needs to be read that way, but I wanted to
1: read it that way mm, I read it really quickly as well, I think it was over the space of a couple of days um and it was it just worked so well. I went back to reread bits because I'm a bit of a I don't want to say thief because that's the wrong word but I think like you said yeah, you, all have to, exactly, <laughs> you have
2: to exactly you
1: have to and I'm currently um working on something which I don't really want to talk about but it's been the same as you it's been like about three years of building and now it's just going boom really fast right. um and I think it needs to do that but it was there's a lot that you do um and I know that you know that you're doing it because it's art after all you kind of know what you're up to but I loved also it's such a visual book it's a really visual book like I feel like I've seen it but you don't go into long descriptions there's nothing (laughs) glorious on the page and I was that's what I was going back for because I was thinking how have you done that that is really super clever your lack of like excessive florid descriptions I don't think you even give very many colors but (laughs) it's so visual. it's me I I think
2: I probably also not learned that but but that I think if I could pinpoint something that I have picked up from other writers I admire it's that and I and I I, I'm, I'm sure there's lots of people I could list, but who really make you feel like you must have just read a long visual description of something because you have such a concrete sense of it. But then when you go back, there are actually maybe only one or two very small mm-hmm. details. Mm-hmm. But I think that like choosing those details that are the most um, specific and can kind of conjure up the rest of it for you is the key because actually, often, you know. I it's not only that generic details can sort of slow the pace down, but I think also they end up almost, you know, um, removing the specificity of those tiny details. So if like, I don't know, it's a, I I often think also like, there can be great descriptions of the sky. You know, I'm not saying do not write like generic descriptions of the sky, because sometimes also there is a place for generic description, because it's like a resting point in the story or like a way of, taking a breath, they have their place. But I was sort of like, I'm not gonna write anything that I feel, well, it wasn't a rule, but I didn't feel drawn to write anything which I felt like was just there to give context.
0: Mm.
2: So I was like, I'm only gonna choose details to describe if I know that that detail is gonna enhance the kind of like the plot development, So I wanted details that could do both things at once, like give a kind of visual signifier, but also mean something for how you would experience the plot going forward. And yeah, so that's why I also kind of was almost drawn to sometimes like cliched language. So at the time of writing the book, I became quite drawn to the kind of cliches that get used a lot in like political journalism that kind of thing like the cliff edge the Brexit divorce all those kind of so I, I noted them down somewhere in the recesses of my brain and then I was as I was coming to doing scenes where it was like description or needing backdrops I would choose those ones that had often actually quite funny resonances or you know intentionally kind of like again, another sort of resistance challenge thing is to pick something that can seem quite cliche, but find a tiny detail within it that makes it the opposite of that. I mean, actually, this is now a kind of, um, it's a side point, but when we're talking about how you sustain yourself over, how you sustain yourself over a long period of time when you're not actually writing the book, but then you're hoping for that kind of storm at the end, like it is just noting down these tiny telling details on your phone it is you know to be honest if i designed a life where i was had complete time and space just for writing and i wasn't part of daily life i would be probably a terrible writer and it's only because i'm like in my daily life and i notice these tiny details and i write them down on my phone or like i'm in situations that whatever are maddening or frustrating or to do with needing you know to make money or whatever it is like designing it so there aren't room for those telling details is I think a mistake when Mm. it comes to writing that you do you want to be part of real life on on a daily basis and so I think like it's um you know I think often when I know people have come out of a period of not writing and they want to get back into it they'll use tiny sensory cues like a smell or The same soundtrack or the same you know whatever it is that kind of puts you right back into that place and I think that that is an example of what you can do obviously with writing itself it's like choose just this tiny thing that puts you into that kind of mood um, and be kind of staring with them
0: Mm, I think that was it was all so so clear especially that um all of the scenes in um in Sarajevo for me I just felt like I was there 100 percent. but it wasn't overdone at all and it's the kind of thing that you could imagine could be easily overdone knowing that most of your readers wouldn't have been there before and right. we weren't familiar with it
2: and I did so much research and I read so many books and there were so many wonderful
0: Sorry, I could always have uh, sorry I could have written
2: a lot more read a lot more books when it comes to that but I did read so many books that already exist that our histories or political you know and there's there's so much that has already been described so i didn't feel like there was any need for me to kind of come in and do that but i felt like oh as i'm you know in the kind of corner of this photo that i take of something in sarajevo that's obvious there will be like i think for example in the book there's a pepper pot made of shrapnel or like a fridge magnet of Tito or whatever.
0: Mm-hmm. And
2: those kind of details that felt like, okay, if you've just given the reader that they can extrapolate outwards. Okay, mm-hmm. so there's a fridge magnet and a pepper pot in the tourist shop. But the tourist shop is right next to this place where really awful bloody historic battles happen. And that, you know, you kind of let them do that work. Kind mm-hmm. of thing. Um, So it was, I'm glad that you say it sounds intentional. I think it was more like I, it was instinct. Um, and then, definitely in the edit process, you know, there were times where I went against that instinct and second guessed myself and thought, oh, I need to explain and show and tell a lot more in that sense. Mm. Um, and then my editor was really good at being like, no, no, your instinct was right the first time. Like, you mm-hmm. don't need to rush in and fill every gap.
1: I like that expression of letting them work. I think you really did that, that the reader does work and because you've put the reader to work it becomes a book that sticks with the reader as well quite long afterwards I think obviously one of the ways that you've done that is without giving too much away is the ending is the lack of um tying things up neatly so that it stays with the reader because you kind of go right well what the fuck basically (laughs) (laughs) at the end of that.
2: Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I think that different, again, it's interesting to know how things like the pandemic also have affected Mm. everyone's like at home reading in their own little bubble, but also we're all having a kind of weird experience of all going through something in very different circumstances but it is also universal and it you know I think that a lot of different people have interpreted the ending differently which I love oh that's really interesting I obviously wanted there to be this ambivalence um, you know this sort of yeah this question mark at the end and then it's funny because some people because you've left it open for any interpretation some people are like well obviously it was this very clear message (laughs) And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Um, If anything, I'd say that's the opposite of what I wanted. But that's the thing. I think you have to, that's where the control freak and the writer has to really uh, sit on your hands and basically allow people to draw whatever conclusion they're going to take from it, even if inside you're thinking like, no, 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 that's the opposite of what I meant. Because to be honest, that's the thing, you know, you're not writing to please everyone or to get every reader to understand it, you just want to have like a handful of people who really it chimed with them and stayed with mm. them. And I think that's, you know, that's the funny thing about publishing is, is, you know, up until you publish a book, your experience of writing normally is like, I don't know, a story if you're a teacher or, a, or something that, you know, a handful of friends will read or like whatever it is. And suddenly I mean, this is the case for everyone who is alive during the age of the internet, but suddenly having that very strange ratio between you, one person with your little thoughts and this whole potential world of people who could read it, it can do really strange things to the dynamics Uh. of the process of writing. And that's what I meant about not having that lack of self-consciousness when it came to writing my second novel. And so I think that not trying to well definitely not trying to please everyone but equally not trying to have like a message or having Mm -hmm. people will still interpret it however and just literally being like I have to sit back and let there be space for people in this book to come to it as readers
1: well, the space very much comes across when i was a kid if i loved a book i wouldn't read the last chapter because i didn't want to know what happened i wanted the story to like carry on i wanted it to continue and i think that that's definitely what happened with the silent road amazing
2: that's so nice i've heard of someone i met someone uh, who told me that they they begin every book by reading the last chapter and then decide if they want oh, to read it.
1: No,
2: it's cheating. I think we just hit upon two very different types of people, haven't we?
1: Yes, I think so. <laughs> um yeah, I reminded me so I I'm trying to think in my head of all these books that do similar things. Um, I don't know if you've read Pew by Catherine Lacey. Oh, I have not
2: read Pew, but I've read a lot of reviews of Pew. Yeah, Pew
1: is brilliant. And the exact same thing happens um, with Pew at the end. So I said to my husband, because he's read it too, I said to my husband, oh, I love that this happened at the end. And he just looked at me like I was completely mad. He's like, did that happen? And I'm like, yes, of course of course that happened and then he's like but no no this happened and then you suddenly realize that this you know as a reader you're taking this fictive artifact and making it real you're actually like arguing about something that never even did happen so what's funny is as I described
2: with exposure almost being like the follow-up from sympathy whereas exploring these ideas like I definitely think each of my books both builds on and reacts to the last one so what you're talking about like that projection of a reader is exactly what sympathy was about like it's somebody projecting this story onto something which Mm. actually has maybe nothing to do with what she thinks is going on Mm. and and that mechanism of sympathy which is obviously like the kind of original novel was the that was the purpose of it It was like a kind of driver of that kind of projection which we understand to be like empathy but actually isn't necessarily that it's like a Mm. way for us to understand what we internally think about ourselves or our own lives that's definitely something that I wanted to explore in a different way in Asylum Road because it was also something I felt very much like was going on around me in in the sense of you know post-truth and all those kind of all these sort of very much sliding kind of very unstable senses of like people having very different takes on exactly the same set of well what is a fact etc but but it felt like the normally I guess reality might feel stable and then you go into fiction to find a place of instability but I sort of felt like everything felt really unstable so to try Mm. and write a book which tried to pin things down was not Mm. the answer kind of thing like it shouldn't feel didactic
1: yeah which it doesn't the instability is very much front and foremost with it it's really interesting that you say that about a book coming from another book I watched an interview um, with Nathan Englender quite recently and he said that the way he writes his books is he um, writes in pairs but he doesn't realize at the time what the next kind of pair is going to be to the first book
0: which is kind of what you're describing so interesting
1: yeah it was really interesting it just shows that you know new things grow from the first thing as well
2: yeah so that's definitely, I, I, it's funny because I don't set out like you say, I don't like have some grand master plan but then you look back and you definitely see how each thing like shaped the other and you know that's again that's why I feel like there is no such thing as like a wasted book even if it doesn't get published or it doesn't whatever it's like brought up ideas and thoughts and things that will spur the next thing that you're writing and you know it's writing is just like this muscle that's never really put to waste even if the book doesn't end up being
0: published mm, absolutely oh, well um i think it probably might be time to talk about what we've been reading this week or in the last week or so sorry i again didn't give you warning no,
2: that's okay. <laughs> it's just <laughs> it's embarrassing at the moment really what i'm reading i mean no it's, it's okay I mean,
0: it doesn't it, you can there is no judgment here there is no judgment and also feel free to pick something you know a few weeks ago that really is yes. with you.
2: And if you can see ill feelings. <gasps>
0: oh yes
2: is what I'm reading and loving at the moment, which obviously is not out yet, but I'm sure it will be out very soon. I can't see if it says when it's out, but it's by Alice Hattrick and it's uh, about her experience of illness and her mother's experience of illness and the kind of struggle to, given what we've just been talking about actually in terms of like reality and not being able to kind of get a foothold in what's really going on. I'm very drawn to those kind of books. At the same time on my Kindle, (laughs) my kindle is really good for reading at night and I have what I think of as like my you know my my books that I'm sort of reading like with my writer hat on and then my kindle is often for like the stuff I'm reading more for like my personal life and at the moment I'm reading um Emma I don't know if you call her Emma Jane Unsworth or Emma Unsworth oh yes her her new memoir about um, depression and things like that which given that it's a book that obviously, I also read her article a while back when it came out in The Guardian. So yeah. I I wanted yeah. To read it. But um, given that it's a book about post depression, I wasn't expecting to laugh so much. <laughs> and last night in bed, I was reading it and I got to a bit where... Her and her partner are worrying like whether it's okay to have sex when you're pregnant, and she reads this thing which says like it's fine, the baby has no idea what's going on, and it's sort of said in this funny sinister way. And for some reason, I started cracking up in hysterics, <laughs> and my partner, who was asleep, like woke up thinking I was crying, and like began to like comfort me, and I was laughing so hard I couldn't even breathe. I couldn't explain, and finally I was like, "No, I'm some funny joke about sex." We're <laughs> like, oh, okay. Well, it's really annoying that you woke me up. <laughs> I'm
0: reading those two. Oh, Ali, what are you? What have you been reading? Uh,
1: well, uh, actually, Olivia made me think because I was thinking about ambiguous endings so much, and then I was thinking about ambiguity in general, and I thought, right, short stories because they're just this weird contextless world that you get placed in and my daughter um is just choosing she's just chosen her a-levels and trying to think about what she wants to do at uni so I'd given her um she is interested in being an editor poor child so I gave her um Raymond Carver's Beginners and What We Talk About When We Talk About Love and she's reading them it's so sweet she's reading them side by side so she'll read one story the unedited one and then she reads the edited one and she's talking to me about short stories all the time she's so excited so I thought right I have to read some short stories this week and I bought um, This Is The Ritual by Rob Doyle I had um, read his first book but I hadn't read these um, short stories and they're absolutely brilliant I love short stories when you're like deep in that kind of can't read too much of other people's work because I don't have any time and also because it might just mess my head up so i'm reading these and they're absolutely brilliant they're um quite wild quite bizarre very ambiguous very contextless like which basically is just brilliant for short stories so yeah really I love so, it.
2: i so agree that that can be what you really need when you're writing like a novel or a longer project it's just like it's like a note you know, mm-hmm. like a mood, a kind of a hit of a different form of consciousness. Yes. Help you, Honestly, I wish I could write short stories. Like that's my. I'd really like to be able to. It's a really difficult skill. Like so novelists so long to kind of clear their throat. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, and even again, it's not like, I don't think I could edit a novel down into a good short story because it's just a totally different.
1: It's a different thing. Film. And I think the short story, like there's so much, that you have to as the writer have in place to produce like three four pages you've got to have this whole mm. world there and then you just place the reader at the right part of the world it's such a difficult thing to do well, um I'm yeah
2: keeping them and everything i mean it's honestly i i can't get over just how amazing short story writers are! Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I know, and it's, it's just so just... annoying for them that they get often seen as like people don't want to pick pick up a book of short stories. I
0: just don't understand it. I don't understand it. Short stories are amazing. I yeah,
2: amazing. And also you can like yeah, I, read them in nice chunks. Like you, you can, can read it Well,
0: this it. is my advice like to anyone. Like I've had over the years, lots of people say to me, cause I, I do love to read a lot. Like how do I get back into reading? I used to love reading before I had kids and now I fall asleep at night and I don't know where to begin and I'm overwhelmed. And I'm always like, go to short stories because you can just read one in an evening and put. and if, it, and if you don't pick up the book again for another week, it doesn't matter because you can just start a new story. Like it's just, yeah. you know, it's a complete, thing and I don't understand why they're not more popular
2: I know I think the thing actually that I that really kept me sane actually during countless lockdowns was listening to the New Yorkers writer's voice podcast where they get the author themselves to read their short Mm -hmm. story because a audio is great and b like it's so different when you hear an actual writer read their own work I mean talking actually about ambiguity in Asylum Road and not having speech marks and stuff the audio version which is read by an actor I feel a very sorry for her and b we ended up having to have quite a few conversations because you know you expect it that I don't know there'll be a part that you meant to be really ironic that actually ends up sounding like really earnest I mean I, I've never listened to the sympathy audio because I just think it would all be a yeah I would be unable to contain my control control control. that's completely wrong that's not how it's meant to be at all like you get a completely different book if you read it that way but to be honest I think that it again it's like this really great way of like especially when the author reads it themselves it's really great way of like just being led you don't have time to like get distracted and uh, they have such good they have like such a good selection of short stories and it's yeah
1: yeah I've got um I think it's called something like the art of the short story from the Paris review. Um, And again, that's the same thing because it's just like this collection of so many different people's work as well. And so much like the complete masters of the form as well. But I think that this is the ritual is quite close to being um, masterful. It's very good. I Uh, actually
2: remember with with talking about like making the jump from like reading fiction for my degree and then trying to understand what was possible in a more contemporary sense. When I read Lydia Davis's often <gasps> very short stories, oh, like only yes. a page long, yeah. and I remember thinking, oh, like, you can do it this way. You yeah. can do it this way. Anyway. It's like a great way as well to, like, mm-hmm. make things mm-hmm. in a totally different yeah. way. I think, problem quite quickly.
1: Yeah, Lydia Davis's prose, when I first read her, just completely blew my mind I was like oh this is what writing is this is what you can make a sentence be like and I think that's what the short story does as well when you take it and try and apply what they're doing to a longer form and you can realize that actually this is how you can make things sound so good this is how you demand attention as well Exactly.
2: And they're also really good on those details we were talking about, because they don't have room to build the whole picture with Mm -hmm. the descriptions and so on. They're really good at choosing those tiny telling details. And in fact, like if I think of a Lydia Davis story, there's one called Passing Wind in which literally nothing happens except that she's in a room with a visitor and her dog and someone farts <laughs> but like it's unclear if it's the man or the dog and then she's like do i say something because if i say something and it's him but he might think it's me so like <laughs> and there's this basically internal drama going on for the entire story and which nothing is said at all <laughs> but it just makes you realize that like i think that what's good about short stories is they often elevate something seemingly everyday or small to the status of art and that can be really inspiring for, yeah, longer form stuff.
1: Yeah, and I think it's the way that they can kind of get that, like, really zoom in on the strange. That's what I love about short stories is they're often very, like, defamiliarized, and there's just this kind of strangeness because nothing is explained as well. and You don't know where it's really come from. There's another Lydia Davis story where she does that called A Mourn Lawn. and she plays on the moan moan and oh my goodness it's so clever (laughs) I wrote a whole essay on that at uni just on that single story I color-coded it as well which was a bit mad looking back (laughs) I'm thinking it was probably I probably did it completely wrongly my reading that I performed was probably totally wrong but then that's what reading is anyway so yeah Penny what have you been reading this well
0: so speaking of short things I've done some, some something very short and something very long um I've been dipping into the, um, you know, the Daunt books. They've been bringing out these collections of essays and I got in the garden and I've loved, they did in the kitchen and um, at the pond um, about the Hampstead ladies swimming pond. Um, And I've loved all of them. They're so good. And they're just like short essays by all different, really interesting, diverse writers, and in the garden, I was not as expecting to enjoy as much as in the kitchen and at the pond, and it's great. It's just brilliant. They've just got such an interesting selection of writers, and they're writing about such different things to do with their relationship to their gardens. Um, so that's brilliant, and uh, and I've started, and I'm a bit of a way in, but it's quite a beast, and I'm not kind of can it's so big I can't carry it around it's the adventures of Miss Pym it's the new biography of Barbara Pym by Paula Byrne and it's so enjoyable and so good but it's such a beast it's just got to sit by my bed basically so I'm going to go through it quite slowly I think I think everyone's got like books that
2: like serve different functions in their day one is like when you're stationary the other is in your handbag the other is you know that you can read at night or whatever in the dark etc yeah it's it's okay to have like three on the go
0: yes I've yeah and I usually and I usually have audio on the go as well I can't remember what I haven't got my phone near me I can't see what yeah I've got so many different things on the go at the moment Oh, well, um, thank you so much for coming to chat with us. It was, it was great to dive deep on, yeah, writing anxiety and stuff as well. And I have to say, everyone, I mean, both of your novels, but I think every single writer should read Exposure. It is just, it so captures um, the difficulties of of writing and exposing yourself as a writer and just like you're saying you know the the difference between writing and publishing and the tension between those two things so please everybody go out immediately um and get a copy very of it. short it fits in your handbag it fits in your handbag you can, <laughs> this is a you can read anywhere one um, and asylum road is just magnificent so um yeah thank you, thank you yeah, it's great. it's great therapy talking about this stuff. <laughs> and it's free. And it's free. Cool. Thanks,
1: guys. Thank you. You've been listening to Not Too Busy to Write with Ali Miller and Penny Winsor.
0: You can find show notes, including the best ways to get in touch with us, as well as any reading recommendations mentioned in the episode at nottoobusytowrite.com.
1: And if you're enjoying the show, don't forget to subscribe. And please go ahead and leave us a little review. It really helps others to find the podcast.
0: You can find Ali on Instagram at Ali underscore Miller underscore rights and Penny at Penny Windsor.
1: Music and editing is by Ewan miller McMeekin.